Good morning. Do want to welcome you here this morning again to Boulevard Bible Chapel, but we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we're gathered in His name. Not in the name of this church, not in the name of anyone here, but only in the name of the Lord Jesus. We will begin this morning our series in the book of Romans, and uh, I consider it a great honor and privilege to open uh, the book before you. Having said that, it is a monumentous task. Uh, we're going to uh, seek to uh, do three things this morning, and again, this is our first message, if uh, hopefully we've got that, fir- very first message in uh, the letter of Romans, the book of Romans. And we trust, Lord willing, over the next, uh, I think, 18 weeks or so to continue week by week working through the book together. Uh, what we would like to do this morning, um, I think I've got this going here. There we go. All right. Uh, we want to do three things this morning, Lord willing. An introduction to Romans, an overview of Romans, and then, if the Lord allows, some highlights from Romans 1, 1 to 17. So please open to Romans chapter 1, if you're not there already, and let's read the first uh, 17 verses together. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a will, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established." That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For, and these are very familiar verses, uh, please take special note of these as we're going to build uh, some of the overview off of these verses. For, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then this is a very important verse as well. Uh, we'll uh, make special note of it as we go forward. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And again, as the Lord allows, we'll make uh, comments on the first 17 verses. But first, 
an introduction and an overview, and whatever's left, of course, we'll cover this evening in small groups. Romans has had a profound effect on countless individuals throughout history. I trust that it will have a profound effect on each one of us as well as we work through it uh, together. Andrew prayed that we are going to be looking into God's word, and that is the case. I trust that you indeed will look into God's word with me here this morning. Uh, you may know that it was primarily the book of Romans that stirred Martin Luther to stand against the false doctrines of justification by works during that Reformation period. Martin Luther said this regarding Romans in specific. Listen to this. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's what Martin Luther had to say about the book of Romans. You may know that John Wesley's conversion is tied as well uh, to the book of Romans. John Wesley was born into a religious home. He uh, persisted in growing up as a religious young man, uh, went to Oxford University, was considered to be a scholar in his day, religious, but not born again. It wasn't until in late 1735 that uh, John Wesley boarded a ship which made its way to the New World from England where he would serve as pastor to an Anglican church here in the United States in Georgia. On board that ship, the weather went sour, the ship found itself in serious trouble, and he began to fear desperately for his life. This is John, uh, John Wesley's conversion. He had found he had no assurance of salvation, but... On that battered ship, he noticed a a group of Christian Moravians and found that they didn't fear at all in the midst of the storm. In fact, he found them singing uh, uh, hymns calmly to the Lord uh, during uh, this uh, most difficult time when they were in jeopardy, lives on the line, so to speak. Afterward, uh, the storm had calmed and Wesley couldn't help, but he had to ask, uh, what was it that gave Uh, these Moravian Christians, such calm in the midst of storm, no fear. It is said, as I understand from his journal, that the, the Christian Moravian he was speaking to responded with a question, asking him if he, John Wesley, had put his faith in Christ. And Wesley said, on the spot, I said I did, but later reflected, saying, I fear that those were vain words. John Wesley began to realize he had religion but not relationship with Christ, He had a religion of morality and rules. In college, he was part of the holy club. He was a do-gooder, but he was never born again. Had never come to saving faith in Christ. The flesh was still there. He would say, on the evening of May 24th, 1738, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The epistle to Romans. William Tyndale said of Romans that he believed every Christian should know it, by memory. So what is Romans? Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul is the writer. 
The Roman Christians are the recipients. That's notable, but hopefully we'll get back to that either this morning or later this evening. And the gospel is the subject. The gospel is the subject. Now, uh, if this will advance for me, if it won't, would you advance it please to the next slide? The gospel is the subject. If there's one thing that I'd like you to retain, and it's a short thing, hopefully we'll get more than this, but if not, we want to at least get this, that Romans is about the gospel. Uh, back to one, back one slide, please. Right there. Romans is about the gospel. We praise God for the gospel. It is the central message of the Bible, and it is bound up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Notice that verse 1 of Romans 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Separated to the gospel of God. Six times at least in the first 17 verses, the gospel is either stated. If you have an NIV translation, you'll find the word six times. If you have other translations, you'll have it found at least four times, but referred to at least a couple other times. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The gospel is good news. But dear saints, you know that the list of bad news seems to be never ending. We live in a world where bad news is found all around us, from pollution to poverty to deep political divides. Meanwhile, each of us deals with our own mounting personal struggles. There are wars and rumors of wars. There's rampant lawlessness, if you haven't noticed. There's corrupt lawmakers, if you haven't noticed. There are laws being put in place that are absolutely wicked, if you haven't noticed. This is the world that we live in. There are addictions and seemingly uncontrollable abuse going on in the world around us. There is mounting debt, natural disasters, cultural divisions, disease, and ultimately death. These are realities of the world that we live in, are they not? I suggest to you that the world that Paul lived in was not much better, either politically or personally. A world filled with bad news. Yet six times in 17 verses, the Apostle Paul will refer to or proclaim the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel is the good news. What is the good news? Well, Romans tells us that one day the wicked will be delivered up to judgment. This is part of the good news, believe it or not. Romans will tell us that the world itself and all of its bondage and corruption will one day be delivered by the power of God. That sin has stained even creation around us. But one day, because of the gospel, which is bound up in the person of Christ, creation itself will be delivered. The gospel also tells us in Romans that the one, you, me, who would stop working and simply lay hold of Christ by faith, total trust, can be delivered from all condemnation. In the midst of so much bad news, we thank God for the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now quickly, what is so good about the gospel? I've given you a few things, but I want you to just listen to this. 
According to the, the, the letter of Romans, the gospel is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord, and there is no greater person. What is so good about the gospel? Romans will tell us that the gospel is based upon his performance. There is no safer place to be than resting on him. Romans will tell us that the gospel is the power of God, and there is no surpassing power. Romans will tell us that the gospel promises and provides salvation, spiritual and eternal salvation, and there is no more needed salvation. Romans will tell us that the salvation in the gospel is for everyone who would believe. There is no more inclusive offer. Romans will tell us that the gospel proclaims the righteousness of God. There is no purer righteousness. Romans will tell us that the gospel makes present and future peace with God. There is no sweeter peace. Romans will tell us that the gospel is the ultimate portrayal of the great love of God. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I suggest to you there is no greater love. What is so good about the gospel? I trust as we look into the book of Romans, it will become manifestly evident. What is so good about the gospel? What is the good news? Now, you might say the gospel. Isn't that the theme of the whole New Testament? And you'd be right in saying that. Essentially, that's the the theme of the whole Bible. So why do we uh, uh, specify this as we look into the book of Romans? Well, Romans is the longest of Paul's letters and is unique in the depth of gospel substance and in its detailed and systematic presentation of the gospel message. I know that's a mouthful, but it's true. The gospel in Romans is broad in its expanse, bold in its emphasis, and ever so thorough in its explanation. One writer said this as we bring our introduction to the close. The truth of the gospel is not unique to Romans. That's true. The truth of the gospel is not unique to Romans, but its systematic, historical, and theological depths stand out among all the letters of the New Testament. This is the epistle to the Romans. This is the book of Romans. Now, to an overview of the book of Romans. We go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and we find these two key verses. These two verses alone, no doubt, we could... We could sit on them, we could preach them, we could think about them for hours on end. I want to highlight just two things, although there's much, much more there. Number one is the first thing. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, oftentimes when we think about this, we think that Paul is saying, um, I'm not afraid to tell people about the gospel. Or I'm not bashful about the gospel. And while there's some truth to that, no doubt, there's more to it than that. What Paul is really saying as we begin to work through the book of Romans is that the gospel will hold up under all scrutiny. And in this sense, I am not ashamed. If you would look at one verse in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 quotes this verse, which says in Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put 
to shame. This is the same idea, the same word. So it's not so much that I'm just not afraid to tell others about the gospel. That's not all Paul was saying. Paul was saying that under whatever intense scrutiny, from critic or cynic, the gospel will hold up. And the reason why verse 17 ties in so clearly to this is because, well, it says this. And again, I know there's much more in verse 16. Don't get me wrong. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What we're going to find in the gospel story, in the gospel narrative, is that God is declared to be right at every turn. When God judges, he is right in judging. When God brings condemnation, he is right and righteous in bringing condemnation. This is part of the gospel story. However... When God justifies mankind, he is also right and righteous in doing so. It is not as if in the gospel that God would take your sin and just sweep it under the rug. Romans makes this very clear, that the gospel declares the righteousness of God, that God has dealt with your sin, that the penalty of your sin, which is death, has been dealt with. And that he can justify you, which is to declare you righteous. And I know if you're like me, you say, that's not me. I'm not righteous. But God can justify you, which means to declare you righteous. Why? Because of the gospel. In the gospel, his righteousness is declared because we find that God has, in fact, dealt with your sin and the penalty of your sin. That death has been dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that your righteousness is indeed not your own, but it's Christ's righteousness. So that God can, in all righteousness, declare you righteous because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, because what he has done has been attributed to me. This is what we find in the gospel as laid out in Romans, that his death was substitutionary. Hey, listen, many people today love to talk about the cross of Jesus in one way or another, but often don't go beyond the point of the cross and Christ's death being exemplary. And it is exemplary. It teaches us how to suffer could even teach us in some respects how to die. But I tell you that Christ's death is far more than exemplary. Christ's death, according to the gospel in Romans, is far more than exemplary. He's not just an example to follow. His death is substitutionary. He is that one that stood in our place, that died, that took the wrath of God that you and I deserved. This is the gospel in Romans. And so God is found to be righteous. Let's see this. Let's see this. By the way, you want to note that righteous, righteousness, and unrighteousness is found, if you take those three words, of course, they're all very related, 50 times in the gospel, 50 times in the gospel according to Romans, the letter of Romans, 50 times. A key theme, no doubt. We'll see this time and time again. Just look for a moment. In fact, at the verse, the next verse, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then look again at verse 32. 
again, we're just thinking about the fact that righteous, righteousness, unrighteousness is a theme throughout Romans. Verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that God is right when he judges. Chapter 2, verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I've given you three. There's 47 more that you can find throughout the book. Righteous, righteousness is key to the book of Roman. That God is found... You know what's very interesting? Look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. says this in Romans 4, 4, certainly not. It's responding to a question about whether God is faithful. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, listen to this, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Does anyone want to guess who the you is in that verse? Well, I'll give you two options. It's either mankind or it's God. Believe it or not, it is actually God. In fact, in Luke 7, we find another account where God is justified. Because justified does not mean to be made righteous, but to be declared righteous. And so when God judges, and ultimately, in the end, when God judges, this is what it says in Romans 3 and verse 19. We know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In that day of judgment, God will be found to be absolutely right in his judgment. So much so that every mouth will be stopped Uh, in our home. We have lots that are good at running their mouth. Oh, that's a sad term, isn't it? But it's true. I've got five kids, and it seems that every time I try to pin them down, boy, they are really, really good with giving me excuses. But in the day of judgment, Romans will tell us that God will be found to be so righteous, so right in his judgment, that every mouth will be stopped. There will not be one standing before God on judgment day saying, but, 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 but Lord, you just don't know what I've been through. But Lord, you don't know the family that I grew up in. But Lord, you you don't know the things that I've seen and dealt with. No, every mouth will be stopped. You'll have no excuse. I'll have no excuse We'll all stand, not just sinners, by the way, but guilty sinners. That's what the Bible says in Romans 3.19, that we'll stand guilty before God. Who? All the world. I don't know how to make it more clear than that, but all the world. This is the summary, by the way, of Romans 3, 1 through 3. In fact, uh, we really should run Romans 1.18 through 3.20. These verses go together as the condemnation, man's di- uh, God's diagnosis of man's condition. I am so far ahead of myself here. I have an overview, and it goes with this. So, 
Let's see if we can work through this. Romans 1 to 5, we have the wrath of God. I want to say up front, uh, Romans is relatively easy to divide. And what I mean is that if you listen to lots of different Bible teachers, you will probably get a similar division to this. Now, granted, it can be broken down even further, but lots of people, this is not unique to me or my keen eyes. Uh, in fact, lots of this is borrowed, if you could say that, from others. So the wrath of God, Romans 1 to 5. Number two, the wreckage of sin. We, what we find in Romans is that man's problems are bigger than just the penalty of sin, which is death. That our problems go beyond that. Well, we'll get into that. Okay, so the wreckage of sin. Number three, which uh, I'm sure lots of you would know right offhand, is Romans 9 to 11. There we go. The waywardness of Israel. The way, waywardness of Israel is important. You could say that each of these three especially are problems that Romans addresses, problems that are dealt with uh, in the book of Romans. The first two summarized in the gospel, no doubt. And the third as well, we find, well, it takes some digging, but we do find uh, that there is a solution to this as well. The last one, if you would, number four, deals with the walk of the Christian, Romans 12 to 16. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you an illustration. Uh, and again, we're taking a massive uh, topic this morning. But I want to give you an illustration that I trust will help you as we think about this. Uh, you can leave it just right there. Thank you. That's good enough. So, four things laid out. Romans broken up into four parts. The wrath of God, the wreckage of sin, the waywardness of Israel, the walk of the Christian. Okay, so think about this for a moment. It's just an illustration. Suppose that you have a friend and this man is known for his bad driving. Yeah, it's already up there on the screen, by the way. He's a bad driver. He's known for his bad driving. He, he runs stop signs. He hardly stops. He, he creeps on red lights. He speeds up when he shouldn't speed up and all the rest of it. it almost sounds like me when I'm driving. Something like that. So he's a bad driver. Suppose that one day, uh, in his bad driving, he of course has broken the law. He believes he's got the police on his tail, and so he speeds away, uh, trying to escape the law. Speeds away, and in his speeding away, takes a corner too fast, crashes into another vehicle, and kills all five people in the vehicle. Again, this is just an illustration, but suppose it's true. Kills all five people in the vehicle. In the crash, he's badly damaged, badly hurt. He's taken to the hospital. In the hospital, he finds out, at least from what he can tell, the news gets worse. The physician to whose care he's been assigned has lost his last five patients. This is a sad state for this man, is it not? You could break his problems up into four, like we've broken up the problems of Romans. And I understand that the last section is maybe a stretch to call it a problem, but indeed it actually is. We have a very hard time walking as Christians, and we're going to see that we need transformation in order to do that. Now, we've got the four points already up there. Uh, if I were to say to you, okay, so we've got, we've got, I've got four problems. We've got this man, bad driver, uh, 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 wrecked into someone, crashed his vehicle, uh, killed five people, he's badly damaged, and he's under the care of a physician who's lost his last five patients. A man filled with problems, no doubt. If I were to ask you, uh, well, uh, maybe someone would say, 
let's go visit the man in the hospital and let's get him some driving lessons. You know, this man, this is what started all of this anyway. He's a bad driver. Let's get him some driving lessons. Well, I don't think it would take much convincing for any of us to know that his biggest problem at this point in time is not his bad driving. In fact, understanding that he has killed five people, he's under the severe penalty of the law, we find his biggest problem is that judgment is upon him. Now, his damaged body and his damaged car, those are problems as well and need to be dealt with, and they will be dealt with. And, of course, we have that physician. And really what we find as we work through the book of Romans, when we get to section 9 to 11, which is often a very difficult section to deal with, we find a question, which is basically this. Is God unrighteous? I want to relate this to the physician. Is it the great physician's fault that Israel has gone wayward? Is it his fault? Look at what Romans 9, 14 says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is it the physician's fault? Well, in the story, in our illustration, suppose we find out that his last five patients were critically ill and uh, wouldn't even accept the treatment that he gave to them. They refused the treatment. Well, we find out it's not, after all, the physician's fault, is it? It's the patient's fault. Well, that's what we find in Romans 9 to 11, that very difficult passage. But this man has problems, problems coming out of his ears, you could say. He's under the penalty of judgment. He's physically damaged. His vehicle's damaged and all the rest of it. He's under the care of a physician. And indeed, he is a bad driver. What is very interesting is that when Romans lays out the problems of mankind, this is the way that they're laid out. What's interesting about that? Well... If many religions were going to write the book of Romans, I would bet you that what would come first is section number four. Let's teach you how to be a good moral person. Let's see if we can shape you up a bit, you know. Can we get you walking on the right path? And we'll put that section one all the way at the end so that maybe... When we get to the very end, well, we have to find, in fact, that there are solutions to these problems. That when we get to the very end, we could find justification before God if we only walk the right path. But this is not the way that Romans lays out your problems and my problems, the problems of mankind. The problems of mankind are laid out in this fashion. That first to be dealt with is the wrath of God, the penalty of the law, that judgment is upon mankind. Now, we will get to the bad driver. We will get to that Christian walk, and I'm not demeaning it. It's very important, and Paul will show us it's very important, but it's not the first problem to be dealt with, your Christian walk. First to be dealt with is the judgment that we are under. And so Romans 1, verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And begins to lay out the sad state of mankind. 
that even those who are the pagan rebellious, they still have creation screaming to them that there is a creator God. I mean, you think about it, you look at creation around you. Even if you had no Bible, you would look at the things created around you. You'd look at yourself and you'd have to say, there's got to be something out there greater than me because I didn't create this. I didn't bring this about. In fact, even if I tried, I couldn't create it. There's got to be someone greater out there. And so creation is screaming to the pagan, screaming to the rebellious of Romans chapter 1, that there is a God. Turn to the living God. But what we find in Romans 1 is that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We cannot spend too much time working through this. I know that Brian will help us with this next week. But look at the conclusion again in Romans 1.32. Who, remember this is the rebellious, the pagan, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. This is God's declaration of condemnation upon the rebel who will not turn and seek him as creator God. But you say there are others out there in society, you know. There are some who may not be rebels. Well, Romans chapter 2 will tell us about two other classes of people, so to speak. Not just the rebellious, but the moralist. Romans 2.1 would say this, You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. The rebellious is under the condemnation of God. Creation screams to them, yet they will not turn. But it's not only the rebellious, it's the moralists. There are lots of good moral people out there. And they're so good, in fact, that they within themselves can look at others and point in judgment. We know lots of people like this, don't we? I've got religious neighbors, our moral neighbors. They look and they can point and say, this is wrong and that shouldn't be that way and all the rest of it. And in their judgment of others, they condemn condemn themselves. They show that they themselves are fully aware of righteousness, are fully aware, aware of what is right and wrong. In fact, they so, don't so much have creation speaking to them, but Romans 2.15 would say this, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. They have a conscience that tells them what is right and wrong, so much so that they can rise up in judgment to one another. They also stand condemned. Listen to what Romans 2.5 says, In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The rebellious will stand condemned, Romans 1. The moralist will stand condemned, Romans 2. 1 to 16, and the religious will stand condemned as well. Paul addresses those who are Jews. Notice what he says at the end of chapter 2. You therefore, in verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you not steal? You see the religious, they have not only creation and a conscience, but they have the commandments as well. They have the law of God before them. And Paul would say, let's really, let's really think about this like David this morning. God, judge these wicked people. Look at what they're doing. This is not me. This is them. Look at them in their wickedness. And Paul would say, let's, let's, let's get real here. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal at all? Ever? Mm, Yeah. 
the religious stands condemned as well. And so the wrath of God would be poured out upon mankind. Notice the conclusion in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We stand under the wrath of God. This is, you could say, the sad conclusion to the state of mankind, according to God's diagnosis. Apart from Christ, this is the sad conclusion. I encourage you to read it, Romans 3, 9 to 20. There is none righteous, no, not one, verse 10. There is none who understands, and so forth and so on. There is no one standing before God in their own goodness, in their own right standing, the sad conclusion to the state of mankind. But praise God that verse 21 of chapter 3 introduces us to the saving solution to the state of mankind. What is that solution? Well, it's up on the board. Justification. This is what we're going to see as we work through the book of Romans, that God can declare you righteous. How? With that assessment of mankind? Who could God ever declare righteous? Well, we find out there's something going on here. There's a gospel that Christ Jesus has paid the penalty. He has taken the wrath of God and that if I by faith, it's not by works. You don't say I'm going to start behaving better today. It's like a smoker who comes into the doctor and says, you know, uh, I've got this problem. And the doctor says, well, you've got cancer to the worst extent. And he says, okay, well, from today on, I won't smoke anymore. Doctor says it's too late. You've got a terminal illness. This is the state of mankind. So don't say from here on out, I'm going to do better, Lord. No, but by faith, put your trust in Jesus Christ. He can deliver you. He can put you in a standing of justification. I can rise. I don't deserve it, God. But you've declared me righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is what Romans 3, especially verse 21 to 26, portray that Christ has done everything necessary so that God can be, look at verse 26, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm going to close with an illustration. Um, I trust that the rest of the outline will help you. Uh, we have bigger, we have other problems, I should say, besides the wrath of God. It's sin within us. That's the wreckage of sin. You may have noticed, if you're a Christian, that you still have problems with sin. And I cannot go into the detail of it, but we will as we go into Romans, that Christ is also the answer for this problem as well. In fact, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 all end with a proclamation regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the answer to our other problem of sin within us. That's the wreckage of sin. The waywardness of Israel, of course, one might say, why, if this gospel is so good, why hasn't Israel believed? Well, what is God doing here? He has a chosen people. Paul, you know, tell me about your people. What have they done with the gospel? And we find that indeed God is righteous, that Israel would not come by faith to seek righteousness that God would offer. And then ultimately we get to the last section where we have transformation. We know that from Romans 12, 1, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that leads us into the walk of the Christian. Righteousness is declared. 
Section one, righteousness is developed within the Christian. Section two, righteousness is defended. God is vindicated. Section three, righteousness is then demonstrated in the life of the Christian, which is the last section. I close with a illustration that I trust will help as we think about what Christ has done on our behalf and really what Christ has done for the Father. There's a big word in Romans chapter 3, which is the word propitiation. Would you find it there with me as we close? Whom God set forth, whom, that's Christ, God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a big word. It's a difficult word. But it basically means that Christ has done all that is necessary so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who would put his faith in Christ. The illustration goes like this. Suppose that I was a bank teller, and uh, in my days as a bank teller, there was one particular young lady who would come in from time to time and do her banking, pay her mortgage, and so forth. And I took note of this young lady. We'll say her name is Jessica for the sake of the story. And uh, she came in time after time, and one day she comes in, and says, I'm sorry to say, but I cannot pay my mortgage. Well, I've taken kind interest to this young lady. So suppose I say, well, that's okay. You go on your way and uh, have a nice day. Could I do that? Not without the debt being paid, right? Couldn't do that and be just. I'd lose my job, go to jail. I can't wipe out debt. I'm a bank teller. Suppose that a rich man came in and uh, said, now this account is just loaded with money. And what I want to do is I want you to use this account. And when you see someone in need, I trust your judgment. I want you to help them out. So when the lady, young lady comes in and says, I cannot pay my mortgage, I can take funds from this account, apply it to her account, and she can go out free. This is the idea of propitiation that Christ has given to God the Father in that sense, an account that is so large that any who would come to him by faith, well, their debts can be paid for. Jesus Christ has propitiated God the Father. He's given God the Father the ability to do what he desires to do, which is to show mercy to you, yet remain righteous. A righteous judge, you know, cannot sweep sin under the rug. I don't know if you've ever stood before a judge. I might have for a traffic ticket once. They can't just just sweep it under the rug. It has to be dealt with. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has done what's necessary to give God the Father. He's propitiated God. He's given him an account that he can draw from, that anyone who would come and say, it's not of me, I cannot do it. I recognize I'm condemned, whether I see myself as uh, rebellious or a moralist, or a religious, there's nothing in me that is good before God. I cannot merit my own salvation, but we come by faith in Christ, and God can, in that sense, draw from that account, cover the debts that we owe, and send us out free. We thank God for the gospel as laid out in Romans. I do trust that the Lord will help us as we go forward. There is so much more needless to say. We look forward to looking at it together this evening. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for the gospel as it is systematically laid out 
in Romans. We thank you for the fact that you are both just. We, we want you to be just, O oh God. We want justice on this world. We want you to deal in justice. We want you to be just. And we're so grateful that your word proclaims you as such. And yet, you are the justifier of us. And we thank you for that. I do pray that if there are any here today who have not come to Christ by simple faith, laying their works aside, their flesh aside, coming to put their faith and trust in Christ, that they will do so today before it is too late. We thank you for your goodness toward us. Oh God, the good news of the gospel. We thank you for it. Help us as we go forward to be fully persuaded of its veracity and to be indeed uh, a re-impassioned with the effects of it and our ability to live in it and proclaim it in Jesus' name. Amen.